Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to the Hyman Forum in the Goucher College Athenaeum. I'm Sanford Unger, president of the college, and happy to welcome you to the annual lecture of the Roxana Cannon-Arsht, class of 1935, Center for Ethics and Leadership. The Arsht Center was created to explore ethics, issues of ethics and leadership across a range of liberal arts disciplines. And although she can't be with us this evening, I want to thank Adrienne Arsh, the daughter of Roxana Cannon Arsh, for whom the center is named. She made the center and the lecture series possible, and we're sorry she's not with us this evening. The Arsh Center event also typically can coincides with the college's annual committee of visitors meeting. And uh, the committee of visitors is an advisory board comprised of corporate citizens, foundation, nonprofit executives, alums, parents, and other friends of the college, and they're meeting at Goucher right now. I wonder if I might just ask them to stand and be recognized, those who are with us this evening. Tim, and that includes you. Uh, I co-chair the Committee of Visitors with Fern Hurst, a member of our, an emerita member of our Board of Trustees from the class of 1968, and we're glad she had this idea and that the Committee of Visitors continues to be a, an important consulting body for the college. Um, I want to introduce our guest of honor this evening, Goucher College's 2001 visiting scholar for the Arsh Center, David Sanger. He is the Chief Washington... <laughs> David uh, reminded me this evening that he has worked for the New York Times for 29 years. Uh, remarkable stability in the journalism profession. As he said over dinner, he's never worked for a normal newspaper. Uh, he is now, after, after working in New York, Tokyo, and Washington, he has now uh, holds the esteemed position of Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times. He is author of, among many other things, The Inheritance, The World Obama Confronts, and The Challenges to American Power based on his seven years as the newspaper's White House correspondent. We're going to talk on matters related to that this evening. David is also an adjunct professor of public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where he's a non-resident visiting scholar. He's uh, widely consulted on issues of national politics, foreign policy. He's received numerous journalism awards, including being twice a uh, member of New York Times reporting teams that won the Pulitzer Prize frequent guest on uh, the television talk programs that we all know, including Washington Week, Face the Nation, Meet the Press, and This Week. Uh, most importantly for us, however, David is the son of Goucher alumna Joan Sanger from the class of 1953 and her husband Kenneth, who are in the audience. Would the Sangers please stand? It is required for the successful children of Goucher alums to come and speak at the college. And David, <laughs> David uh, recognized that. You'll all, you all have to remember that in the, the years ahead. Our format tonight is the following. Uh, David will uh, make some opening remarks. Really, our focus tonight is on President Obama and foreign policy. Uh, then we'll have a conversation, and we'll invite questions from the audience. There are microphones on either side at the forum level, and uh, the usual rules will prevail that Goucher students will have priority for asking questions. Uh, there is a book signing following the event. Uh, 
books are on sale at the top of the stairs, and I think they'll be signed down here. Is that right, Angie? Okay. So uh, after the talk, we'll do that. Please join me in welcoming my friend David Sanger as the 2011 Visiting Scholar of the Roxana Cannon Arch Center for Ethics and Leadership. Well, thank you very much, Sandy, for that introduction, for all that you have done here uh, at Goucher. It's fabulous to be um, back on, that camp, on the campus here and uh, to see what you've done with it. It's been great meeting a number of the undergraduates who, uh, who I had a chance to, to meet over the past couple of hours. Um, as you've now uh, heard, because Sandy has told you, I grew up hearing a lot about Goucher uh, along the way. Um, I was glad that you mentioned uh, what class mom was a member of because if I had let the date out, I think there was some concern about whether or not I'd get sort of a hot meal when I was uh, coming back home. Um, but um, uh, we heard a tremendous amount about Goucher. It was terrific. I'm sure I would have applied. I'm sure my dad would have applied had there not been a bit of gender discrimination underway at the time. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but it's, it's wonderful to see uh, what an incredible, vibrant um, uh, student, uh, student body you have here now. Um, when Sandy called a number of months ago and honored me by asking me to, to come give the, the Arsh lecture uh, today, we thought the big subject would be WikiLeaks, uh, which um, uh, we had just uh, just published and something I was deeply involved in, or maybe the budget negotiations or the debt or whatever. We had missed, and this conversation was, I guess, late last year, sort of the two big events of, um, of early 2011. And I refer first, of course, to the fact that the Orioles are in first place. painful as that is for a Red Sox fan to admit. Uh, and secondly, that there would be a modest uprising on the other side of the wor world, one that would shake our perceptions of how the next few years may play out, uh, and that would certainly shake half a century of American certitudes and a good number of platitudes uh, about the Arab world. Um, we still don't know whether the events we've seen over the past couple of months will ultimately be for good or ill, but it's certainly been uh, pretty interesting times in the news business where I toil and where Sandy spent so much of his time before he um, came over to the other side here. Um, a few Sundays ago, uh, I was sitting in a, uh, a news meeting, uh, one of those weeks that we were working around the clock, and I was listening in over the speakerphone to our daily page one um, meeting, and I heard some editor in New York, some disembodied voice say, so let's see, we've got a civil war underway in Libya, we have an American intervention that's about to happen, we have rioting in the streets of Syria, uh, we've just thrown our closest ally in Yemen under the bus, there's an earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown in Japan. And then in the back of the room, I hear some other voice said, yeah, but anything for the front page. <laughs> so um, I want to reserve most of this evening for the conversation uh, with Sandy and then with all of you. But I just wanted to throw out a few simplistic impressions about the past few months and what we're calling the Arab Spring. I, I think the words alone give you a sense of 
how much we are imposing an American construct on this because as an Arab friend pointed out to me quite sarcastically the other day, you know we don't have spring. Uh, and in fact, they don't. Um, and then I, I thought I'd talk uh, a little bit about our other big journalistic adventure of WikiLeaks and why we published it and what we learned from it. But um, first, the Arab Spring or Arab Winter or beginning of Arab Summer, whatever we're calling it. Um, a caution about this subject matter. We have to come with it to it with some humility since absolutely none of us, certainly not me, uh, had predicted that these Arab uprisings would happen this year. And in fact, I don't really know anybody who did predict the timing of this. Uh, and you have to think about that every time you flip on the TV and you hear some expert opining quite eloquently about what's going to happen next in this. If nobody saw it coming, our ability to um, predict the next few months, I think, uh, we have to approach with some caution. Um, we have a lot of company, by the way, in not seeing it coming. Um, one of my favorite tales from the reporting of this uh, set of remarkable couple of months uh, where I've been mostly focused on how the White House has responded is that President Obama in one of his morning uh, intelligence briefings asked his CIA briefer during the midst of the Tunisia uprisings, so what are the chances this is going to spread to Egypt? <laughs> he said, oh sir, under 20%. So I thought that was pretty bad, and I went to some Israeli uh, officials who I know uh, pretty well, and over dinner I said, okay guys, so what was the Mossad's um, prediction about what would happen coming out of Tunisia and whether it would spread to Egypt? And they said, under 20%. <laughs> so um, we all sit here wondering why we can't figure out whether the Iranians are really trying to build a nuclear weapon. I think you now know the answer. Um, but on to a few quick points uh, on this. Obviously, this is potentially a vast change, uh, as broad in its implications as 1989 was uh, in Eastern Europe during the, the time period after the fall of the Berlin Wall. In many ways, a lot riskier, because these are many societies whose past patterns have not been as unified uh, nations. All 22 Arab countries are in play in some way or another. Um, no one knows how this drama will play out. Uh, if the conventional wisdom just two months ago was that Egypt was on the cusp of long-delayed, pent-up desires for democracy, I think that the conventional wisdom today, only 60 days later, is, that, as one dissident in, uh, in Egypt put it so wonderfully about a week or two ago on our pages, the dictator is gone, but not the dictatorship. You have now seen the rise of the military, uh, you saw the other day what I thought was a really bad sign, a blogger who was sentenced to three years of jail basically for contending that the military hadn't changed much since Mubarak left power. Um, so how do we think the Obama administration handled this? I think it's fair to say that the Obama administration played the first act of this change pretty smoothly. Uh, but it's clearly running into problems now, and we probably are in only the first or second act of what may be a five-act play or more. Um, true, the reaction initially when the uprisings started in Egypt were a little bit bumpy. 
there was that moment when uh, Secretary of State Clinton uh, was asked whether or not uh, she still sided uh, with um, the government in Egypt. This was in the early days of the protests. And her answer was, well, Egypt is a stable country and Mubarak is interested in reform. Uh, a week later, no American official would utter those words to us a second time. The day after she said that, Vice President Biden uh, was asked whether he would characterize Mr. Mubarak, obviously a longtime American ally, as a dictator, and he wouldn't answer the question. A week later, everybody in the administration was saying that he had been a dictator for 30 years. Um, but they recovered from this pretty fast, and President Obama had some pretty tough calls uh, with President Mubarak, urging him to enact reforms, or at a minimum, get out of the way of the reforms, which was his polite way of saying uh, to step aside. Uh, at one point, the president said to uh, President Mubarak, you know, I respect my elders. Uh, you've been in power for a long time. Uh, obviously, he'd been in power since the time that President Obama actually was in college. Uh, but the reaction that President Obama heard from President Mubarak uh, really stunned him. At one point, Mubarak said to the president, give me 10 days and this will all go away. President Nasser went through this. He survived it. He told me how to survive it. Well, that isn't what happened, obviously. And President Obama pulled the plug on a um, very loyal American ally. Now, he did this in part because he concluded, accurately, I think, that the Egyptian military was not only unwilling to fire on the protesters, but was unwilling to bet on an 82-year-old dictator who had a vague plan to turn the government over to his son whom the Egyptian military itself deeply distrusted. And so President Obama made, I think, a very cold, calculated conclusion that President Mubarak had been a source of stability and was now a source of instability. And he lasted less than a week uh, after that moment came. But Egypt was a rarity in what was coming next because as we now see, Egypt was a place where American values, which is to say supporting democratic rule and what the president calls universal values, matched up fairly easily with American interests. Yes, we had had an interest in a stable Egypt, but once it became clear that Mubarak was the symbol of instability, our interest shifted very rapidly to taking a bet that either democracy would rise up or that the military, which the U.S. was very comfortable with, having trained them over many years, uh, would take over. And that's still the bet that they're making. But when you think about what's happened elsewhere in the region, that neat matchup of values and interests sort of disappears. And that explains, in many ways, how it is that we could have been vocally on the side of the Egyptian protesters, that we are silent about the protesters in Bahrain, or nearly silent, how we've said almost nothing about what the Saudis need to do to loosen up, and why in Yemen the United States supported 
a longtime dictator who has been a center of American counterterrorism strategy for many, many years. Until two weeks ago, they came to the same conclusion they came to about Mubarak, which is it would be a more unstable place with him than without him. And they threw him under the bus, too. Now, in the case of President Saleh of Yemen, there happened to be no bus coming along. It's Yemen, you know, the bus system never works. And he's still holding on. Um, so that takes us on to Libya and this fascinating question of why it is that the U.S. got involved in the Libyan operation in trying to force uh, Gaddafi out and why it is that the United States pulled back from this operation so quickly. And here, I think the interesting moment came on the afternoon of March 15th. It's hard to imagine here, it's not even a month ago that this happened, when all the president's advisors gathered in the White House Situation Room. And a couple of interesting things happened. The first is that everybody in the room was haunted by a different memory of something that had gone wrong at some previous time in their careers. So you had Susan Rice, who was the American ambassador to the United Nations, and Samantha Power, who uh, wrote a fabulous Pulitzer Prize winning book uh, called A Problem from Hell that dealt with the Rwanda issue and had been around for that, and Secretary Clinton, who remembered from the time when her husband was president, the American failure to go into Rwanda and its slowness in going in to um, uh, stop uh, the, uh, the great tragedies in, in Bosnia and Serbia. Um, and they all ganged up on the side of the U.S. has to invoke this responsibility to protect, a phrase that is often used in... Uh, at the United Nations about a responsibility of the international community to protect people who are threatened by their own leaders versus a very real politic group within the administration that said, look, we have no vital interests in Libya, none. It's not a huge oil supplier. It's not in a particularly strategic position. Unlike Bahrain, there's no American base there. Unlike Saudi Arabia, it's not a, a longtime ally. It's not central to containing Iran the way Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, even Yemen, many of the Gulf countries are. So why would we possibly get American troops involved in a place where we have no vital interests? And this was the debate that took place for much of the afternoon. The president ended up splitting the baby. He ended up saying, we have to go in, but we're not going to put in any ground troops, and we're not going to take the lead for very long. We're going to do this for a few days and turn it over to NATO, as if that's turning it over to someone else. We are about half of NATO, but we'll set that aside for the moment. And so you saw the result. The U.S. went in starting on uh, March 19th, led many of the airstrikes, turn them over a little more than a week later to NATO, and what's happened ever since has been a complete stalemate. So that raises the question, did the president act correctly and cautiously, or 
did he worry more about getting out than getting the job done? And here, it's a difficult question because you have heard two very different goals being laid out by the United States and its allies about what it is we're trying to accomplish in Libya. The president said before the American air operation began that it was time for Gaddafi to leave Libya. The United Nations only authorized a military action to protect the population. When you ask American officials, what are we doing? They're saying, well, the military operation is only aimed at protecting the population. All the rest of the pressure we're putting on Gaddafi is to get him out. Now, this is a pretty complex construct, especially because you have a lot of officials around the world, including French and British and others, who are saying, no, this can't be successful without Gaddafi out. And I think it's the strategic muddle a bit that has left the U.S. at something of a stalemate, not only in Libya, but in Washington, trying to understand what the political objective is and then how much military or non-military force they're willing to commit to that. There's one other element I just wanted to throw out for all of you to think about as you consider how this plays out over the next few months and maybe, maybe over the next few years. If you ask anybody in the Obama administration through, say, January 15th, what is the major objective of American policy in the Middle East? Their answer would have been, it's simple. It's to keep Iran from obtaining a nuclear capability. At the moment that Iran gets a nuclear weapon, all politics in the Middle East change. The chances of an Israeli strike on Iran would rise dramatically. The chances that Iran would use its power or its supposed power to spread its influence in the region would also change the politics of the Middle East and maybe the world and could, of course, trigger a nuclear arms race in the region. My guess is that within a few months, the U.S. will return to making that its major objective. But it's a difficult calculation right now for several reasons. Gaddafi, until the U.S. joined this attack, had been held up as the model for the rest of the region. After all, here's a man who had renounced terrorism, whether he believed it or not, he renounced it, and turned over his nuclear weapons program in 2003 to the United States and the international nuclear inspectors. And in return, he got diplomatic recognition, he was taken off the terrorist list, there was trade underway, and now the U.S. has turned and, of course, joined this effort to oust him. If you are sitting in Tehran right now, and you are watching this set of events play out, what lesson do you extract from it? Well, I'm no expert in guessing the minds of the mullahs in Tehran, but I think it's a pretty good guess that the lesson you would emerge from is exactly the lesson that the North Koreans said they emerged from with this, which is build your nuclear weapon as fast as you can. Because in the end, they believe 
that had Gaddafi actually been successful, and he was a long way from being successful, in building a nuclear weapon, the French, the British, and the U.S. would have thought twice before mounting those airstrikes. And they're probably right about that. There's a second lesson, and it's early to draw big lessons from this, that I think it's worth considering. And that's this. We have all enjoyed the sight of social media playing a huge role in gathering these protests together. I mean, could you put a flash mob together in Egypt or in Bahrain or in Tunisia if you didn't have Facebook? And we'll spend years trying to figure out the role that social media played in this. But it's also clear now, a few weeks into this, that social media is also a huge weapon for the forces of repression here. I mean, imagine this. You're an intelligence officer in Bahrain, or you're a military officer trying to put down protests in Egypt. And you need to figure out who a dissident is likely to call to the square so that you can round them up before they get to the square. Facebook is your great friend under those circumstances. If you can get inside Facebook, you can put together the network of opposition as quickly as the people who have been using Facebook can put together a protest. And we've seen this happening with ferocity in China ever since the first days of the Arab uprisings. The Chinese have not messed around in rounding people up and stopping protests. And we're beginning to see the same thing happen throughout the Middle East. So one thing to consider as we think about what the long-term effects of this is going to be is that the social media have been very much a double-edged sword. One last quick point, and then I'm going to sit down and start up this conversation with, uh, with Sandy and with all of you. It's about WikiLeaks. Um, it was a fascinating project to work on. I guess I first saw the big WikiLeaks database of all of the State Department cables in September, August or September of last year. And it gave us what we now know is an image almost sort of preserved in amber of the US perceptions of the Arab world and the Arab world's perceptions of us just prior to this fascinating uprising. And we saw all the dynamics back and forth. We saw American officials who were pressing Arab leaders to reform, but not willing to press them too hard. We saw Arab leaders who were intently worried about Iran to the point that the king of Saudi Arabia urges his American counterparts to cut off the head of the snake. It was a fascinating look inside the day-to-day -day operations of American diplomacy and by and large, we learned that American diplomats were doing pretty much what American diplomats said they were doing. The publication of WikiLeaks was highly controversial in many parts uh, of the country. And I had just a couple of points to quickly tick off about that, and then we can pick this subject up if you want to when we go on with the rest of the conversation. The first is this. Had the New York Times not published WikiLeaks, it was all coming out anyway. WikiLeaks was going to publish it, Der Spiegel was going to publish it, The Guardian was going to publish it. So 
the New York Times added amplification to this, and I hope we added good, important interpretation and put it in great context, but it's not as if this material was going to stay secret had we not engaged in publishing it. The second thing was, I think there was a really a, a great public service in publishing it, not only because it gave us a vision of American diplomacy, but because it gave many elsewhere in the world a vision of how they are perceived. There are many senior American diplomats who have said to me since that they believe that the Tunisia uprising, which of course was the start of all of this, was in part launched because the Tunisians read in WikiLeaks that the American embassy understood the depth of the corruption in their own country as the country's president and particularly his wife sat by the pool eating caviar, drinking champagne, and people outside were making $2 a day. And they had known that they were run by a corrupt government, but to have it really laid out in specificity in an American cable that they read, I think certainly had an effect. It also had some deleterious effects. The American ambassador to Mexico was recently thrown out of the country by the Mexicans. We've had other ambassadors who've been asked to leave because they discovered how the Americans talked to them, about them. Uh, President Karzai in Afghanistan was not pleased to read the characterizations of him and his family uh, in those cables. Nothing we hadn't published elsewhere in the newspaper, but it is different to read it in the words of those American diplomats. Um, I think it'll take a few years before we really understand the full implications of what publishing it was, but I think we know immediately that the world has very much changed, that this old world in which you could expect the kind of pre-digital secrecy that takes place in American government to continue is pretty much over. You know, at the moment that more than half a million people have security clearances for this kind of material, you have to expect it's going to get out. At the moment that information is wildly overclassified, my favorite in the WikiLeaks is that from every embassy every night, there would be summaries of the local press and what they were saying about events going on or about the United States. And before they would send it to Washington, somebody would assemble all of these and stamp it secret and then send it back to the State Department. These were things that were in the newspaper locally the day before. Um, that tells you that something has gone awry uh, in our own vision of this world. Well, I will leave it at that, and I look forward to our conversation. And again, I thank you for inviting me here tonight. It's uh, great to be here. David, thank you very much. I want to uh, ask you to step back above this for a moment and look at all of the, especially the, the Arab Spring events as you characterize them and ask you what all of this has to say about American credibility in the world. Because we uh, ask people to take us at our word, to listen to what we say, pay attention to what we say, perhaps even more than, than they do what we do. And uh, this change of heart about corrupt leaders, maybe they're important, stable, a rock on America, the American side, and a week later, maybe they're not anymore. Uh, I, I think there's something wrong when the French 
look really principled <laughs> compared to the United States. Um, well, I think there are sort of two, let's unpack your question into two separate parts. One part is, what does American credibility look like in the Arab world and beyond? And then, secondly, what's going on with France, <laughs> okay? okay. Um, on the first question, uh, I think that the administration is caught in a little bit of a difficult spot here because it's easy and wonderful for American presidents, President Bush did it, President Clinton did it, President Obama's now done it, to step out and say we are in support of universal values around the world. Now, of course, if you try to press what exactly are those universal values, you begin to get into some interesting either arguments or vague statements. Um, what American presidents would say if they could is we are in support of universal values around the world but we have to temper that with our own national interests and so we're far more willing to step in in a place like Libya where in fact we have no vital interests as I laid out before and as Secretary uh, of Defense Gates has sort of said uh, very, very clearly, then we are to step out in support of universal values in Bahrain where we know that the big threat here is both loss of the site for the Fifth Fleet, but more importantly, loss of an ally against Iran. And so, the U.S. has spent the past two or three weeks trying to figure out, trying to dance around the question of how you deal with this. Just think of what happened in Bahrain. The Saudis, fearing that Iran would essentially take over Bahrain, which has a Shia majority, rolled their forces right across the causeway and put themselves right in the middle of Bahrain. If you look on the White House website to try to find the statement that condemns the Saudis for their action, violating the sovereignty of an individual of a neighboring country and putting down protests in the streets. Well, if you do find that on the White House website, please email it to me, because I've been looking for a while. It's very mild statements saying we hope that the Bahraini government moves toward reform. And I think that these kind of contradictions over time do have some significant impact on our credibility. And it's going to continue that way because I can't imagine an American president making, a Democrat or Republican, making calls against American interests uh, that strongly. Um, France. Uh, this may be in large part about French electoral politics. The biggest challenge uh, at this point uh, that uh, the president of France faces is from the right. Uh, he was charged with moving far too slowly on uh, Egypt, uh, where they sort of stuck with Mubarak. Uh, Libya was a lot easier. And of course, there was a fear throughout Europe about refugees from Northern Africa, and I think that had a lot to do with this. But it is remarkable that here we are, 60 years, really, or 50 years after NATO's founding, and 
for the first time, the U.S. is not in the lead of a NATO operation. Now, many in Washington say, that's fine. NATO's got to learn how to do this by themselves. The question is, was this the right test case? The, um, does this not show, the, just to stick with Libya for a minute, that a lot of people were willing to be compromised on the subject of Libya? I mean, the notion, there are a lot of scholars, a, a lot of institutions, including the London School of Economics, for example, that are greatly embarrassed because they appeared to buy in to, when you look back at it, an absurd story about how Gaddafi was suddenly the great promoter of democracy, human rights, uh, what was that about Lockerbie and the bombing, you know, that's, that's out of the way. Don't, don't a lot of people look silly about, on the subject of Libya, including a lot of Americans? Yeah, including the United States government. I mean, it was under the Bush administration uh, in which um, they struck the deal to get the nuclear weapons program out of Libya. That was a big accomplishment. I've been through the material that the Libyans shipped out to the U.S. It's all sitting at the U.S. weapons lab in Tennessee. It's in large crated boxes stamped uh, AQ Khan Laboratory, Pakistan. They tried to black out some of the stamps when we showed up, but you know the fact of the matter is you, you, you couldn't cover all the markings. Um, the Libyans had spent between $100 million and $200 million buying basically the same starter kit for nuclear weapons that North Korea and Iran bought. Fortunately, it didn't come with a very good instruction book, and they sort of threw up their arms and, and turned it over. But at that moment, the United States, and Britain in particular, decided that they had to make an example that a country could give up its weapons and then be accepted back in the international community. Now, I don't know if they thought that Qaddafi had undergone some huge religious conversion or whether they had decided that in his old age he had turned into a really sweet guy. But whatever it was, they gave him basically everything that he was looking for, reluctantly, but they gave it to him. And that's a chapter in American history we're going to have to go back and look at pretty carefully. David, um, do you think that... Um it matters whether President Obama looks to be a competent manager of foreign policy at this point. I think it matters hugely. And, you know, it's often said that foreign policy is not a major issue in re-election campaigns, and I'm sure that as this uh, election campaign season uh, uh, moves along, the state of the economy is going to be critical, unemployment's going to be critical, and so forth. But I think that the American public does have a big sense, a major sense, that their president must be able to be shown to be competent in managing it. And it's an interesting question whether had the presidential election in 2004 taken place instead a year later, well into some of our worst casualties in Iraq, whether President Bush would have been reelected. I mean, timing is everything in this. Um, I think President Obama will go into this uh, election campaign making the following arguments. That he got American troops out of Iraq, and in fact, the day he took office, there were 130, 140,000 there. There are a little less than 50,000 now. 
they'll probably be something close to zero by the end of the year. He will make the argument that having surged in Afghanistan, he is beginning to come down. Uh, I think that's going to be a tougher case. I think the American patience for the war in Afghanistan, which will be 10 years old at the end of this year, uh, is growing pretty thin. And I think in the area of the Arab Spring, he is going to have to make the case that he managed a very difficult situation and navigated it as well as he could with the recognition that this isn't about us. That when you look out at the protests, you did not see death to America. You didn't even see many anti-Israeli signs. That this was pretty much about them. And I think the key for President Obama is to keep the narrative that way. Because if it becomes about us, then it gets problematic. And there is still a big risk of that. Remember, for, for those of you in the audience who are old enough to remember the Iranian Revolution in uh, just 30 years ago, for the first nine months, it looked like it was going pretty well. You know, there was a government that we thought we might be able to work with and so forth, and there were American conversations with that government, and then everything turned bad. And that frequently can happen in revolutions. They can get hijacked. Uh, there's a view that's been expressed that, ironically enough, the election of Barack Obama, the election of an African-American as president of the United States, and the, the upheaval that it seemed to represent in the United States actually encouraged or inspired some of these revolutions in the, in the Middle East. Do you buy that? You know, there isn't much empirical evidence for it. There is only logical evidence. Um, Tom Friedman, my colleague who's on the editorial page and who knows this region far better and spent much of his life uh, uh, in it far better than I do, you know, makes the argument that when President Obama gave the Cairo speech in 2009, many in the audience looked at him and saw something remarkable. They saw an African-American who'd been elected president. They saw a man whose middle name is Hussein. That may not be the most salient uh, electoral uh, point for him here, as you joke that he often tells about himself, uh, that you uh, wouldn't uh, name a child that if you thought he was going to run for president of the United <laughs> States. I think President Obama has said on several occasions. But I think it was a huge benefit for him in the Arab world. Um, and his whole life story, I think, is a huge um, uh, benefit for this. But whether or not that was a trigger, who knows? Uh, you know, revolutions are a little bit like earthquakes. We all looked at uh, Egypt, and you knew that at some moment it was going to blow. But like an earthquake, you don't know what the precipitating event is going to be. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that there were so many intelligence failures about this. I'd like to invite people to line up at the microphones if you have questions. Students, Goucher undergraduate students first, and then others are welcome to follow them. Um, let's talk about the WikiLeaks for a moment, David, as you suggested. Uh, the, one of the widely expressed objections to the publication of the WikiLeaks cables, is that somehow they exposed the United States government for 
telling things as they were rather than we're supposed to say they are. In other words, it's, as far as I can tell, it's candor that people are, are embarrassed by, the candor in the cables. Whereas I think you could make an argument that the candor is refreshing and, and uh, makes you feel a little bit better about American diplomats out there. Uh, it, it does sort of expose diplomacy as a, as a charade, as a, as a game of shadow boxing. Well, I'm not sure that it exposes it a charade, but it certainly, I think what made them so refreshing was that it was clear that these cables were American diplomats reporting back facts instead of opinions. There was some interpretation in it. Uh, and that the reporting was pretty good. And as a British journalist who was working on these alongside us, who works for The Guardian, said to us one day as we were working away uh, on these, he looked at me and he said, who knew American diplomats knew how to write? Uh, but in fact, some of it was quite lyrical. If, if you have- They probably have liberal arts college education. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't read the account of the Dagestan wedding, where an American diplomat goes to this crazy all night wedding where um, a known Chechnyan terrorist leader shows up and dances the evening away and then takes off for wherever he hides out most of the time. You have to read it. It's a remarkable... We would have definitely run it on the front page had we had it. Uh, and eventually, of course, we did and we did. Um, but um, uh, if the main complaint was that this gives, this reveals the candor of American diplomats, well then I think we came out looking pretty good. We set some standards about what it is we wouldn't publish, Sandy, and what right. it is we would. And let me just tell you briefly what those were. Um, we had from the start, before we even told the government that we had this uh, trove of material, cut out the names of dissidents, the names of informants, somebody who shows up at the Beijing embassy, even the time of that so that the Chinese could not go match up the cameras they have trained on the embassy with a report of somebody's uh, account. We cut out references to ongoing operations, intelligence operations, military operations. We did not cut out references to historical operations that were long over. Where we and the government came to differences was that the government wanted to cut out anything that would be embarrassing. So if the president, if the king of Saudi Arabia said to the president of the United States, cut off the head of the snake, it might be embarrassing for him to have read those words back. Or if um, President Karzai said something defending the integrity of his brother, who was believed to be deeply involved in the drug trade. That might be embarrassing to President Karzai. We said, sorry, if it is not affecting a current American operation, if it is not affecting the life, potential life or freedom of an individual, but is merely embarrassing, that is not a reason that one cuts this out of a news story. I must say, it's amusing to think um, that the New York Times could be blamed for embarrassing President Karzai, who's done such a good job of embarrassing himself. He, he, he is, when it comes to news, he is the gift who never, that never stops giving right. us. 
Um, okay, well, let's, uh, we can come back to this later if we have time. Christy, why don't we ask everyone to identify yourself, uh, where you're from, what you're studying, what year you're in, and uh, ask your question. Christy, you might need to tilt that down. There you go. Hi, I'm, I'm Christy Cleaver. I'm a junior from Los Angeles, California, um, and I'm a double major in history and in international relations. Is that good? Yes. Um, I actually had a question pertaining to WikiLeaks. Um, what do you think is, is the role of whistleblowing, as WikiLeaks sort of showed that it was in, in overall media in regards to educating en masse uh, not only American citizens but also citizens around the world? And, and do you think that the act of um, restricting what citizens see in these whistleblowing acts is important or if it's a detriment to actually educating everyone on what's going on in diplomacy? Um, it's an excellent question, Christy. Um, I'm not sure that WikiLeaks was an example of whistleblowing. When I think of whistleblowing, I usually think of a leak that is intended to reveal a wrong that is being done around the world. You know, when you think about an industrial accident that's been covered up or you think about an act of racism or sexism or something like that where somebody turns over the documents. In this case, I'm not certain where the documents came from, but if you believe the government's case, they maintain that a private who was based in the Middle East, uh, who had access to something called CIPRANET, which is a network of, of computers that combines Defense Department, State Department, and other uh, material together in one place, part of the post-9-11 reforms that were trying to make sure that different, different groups could talk to each other. He downloaded this onto, or so the government contends, onto some CDs, um, which he then slipped out of the building, their case maintains, by putting the cover of a Lady Gaga CD on top of it, and they thought that he was taking out Lady Gaga's music. Instead, he was taking out every cable that every American embassy and consulate had written to Washington for some number of years. Um, if the government's case is accurate, and I don't know, that person certainly committed a crime. That, those documents then ended up in the hands of the WikiLeaks organization. Whether WikiLeaks committed a crime, I'm not at all certain of. First of all, they weren't run by Americans, and secondly, this didn't happen in the United States. And then they passed them on to a number of news organizations, one of which, The Guardian, passed them on to us. So we got it sort of fourth hand, and the first thing we had to do was verify that it was accurate. So that takes you to the question of motive, which you were getting at. And I think that Julian Assange, who runs the WikiLeaks operation, or at least uh, did before he was his arrest, on unrelated charges, um, said that what he was out to do was expose the hypocrisy of American foreign policy. Well, as I said in my comments, I'm not sure he did expose any hypocrisy. I think that by and large, we saw American diplomats doing what they said they were doing. And so this was many things, and it was fascinating, but I'm not sure it was whistleblowing. Okay, yep. 
Hi, Mr. Sanger. My name is Alana Perlstein. I'm a freshman political science major from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I wanted to call attention to an article you recently wrote about two weeks back titled, um, I believe, The Larger Player in the Middle East, Iran. Um, and I first wanted to thank you because I thought that piece um, was needed at this time. Thank uh, you very much. Especially with all the other articles that are being covered about the Middle East. Um, I had been looking for an article focusing on that. And so I wanted to ask you, um, what were your thoughts behind that piece as you were writing it, maybe um, in comparison to all of the other articles that are being written on currently? Well, thank you, Anna. It was a, um, an interesting um, reporting experience to turn out that piece. And what it came from really was... I might note that Goucher students read the New York Times. Uh, thank goodness for that. Um, and, you know, whether they read it on paper or digitally, we don't Doesn't care matter, as right. long as they're reading it, right? Um, in reconstructing that meeting on uh, March 15th, where the president made the decision essentially to go into Libya, uh, a couple of officials who were sitting in the meeting said to me, you know, the discussion on Iran was really interesting. Didn't occupy the main part of the conversation. Wasn't the main reason to go into Libya. But the point was made to the president that having declared that Gaddafi had to go, if he then didn't back that up, how would the Iranians view this issue since the president's also declared the United States will not allow Iran to get a nuclear weapons capability? If he didn't back up what he said about Gaddafi, what would they conclude about his willingness to take whatever steps were necessary to stop the nuclear program? Now, it might be a false choice. There are other things the United States is doing about the Iranian nuclear program. It's got sanctions, it's got diplomatic pressure, it's got Stuxnet, the, uh, the computer worm which, uh, as we've reported, was partly made in the United States that has invaded uh, part of the Iranian uh, nuclear program. But perception matters a lot in the Middle East, and the point of that story was just to remind people that the major vital American interest in the U.S. is on Iran, maybe on the Israeli-Palestinian accords, maybe in other areas. It's not in Libya, but what happens in Libya will certainly affect the rest of that region. Jacqueline. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Pizer. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I'm a first year, and I'm a double major of American Studies and Communications. Um, and I was just wondering, how do you think the tension in the Middle East will affect the conflict in Israel between the Palestinians and Israelis, if it has any effect or if it will have an effect? A very good question, Jackie, and I think it's going to have a major effect. The Israelis are facing the following problem. The Mideast peace talks, as we know, have gone sort of no place for the past six months. Uh, but there is a deadline that President Obama helped set uh, that those negotiations are supposed to be completed by September. And by September, the Palestinians plan to go to the United Nations and seek passage of a resolution recognizing uh, a Palestinian state, and depending on how it's worded, presumably recognizing it on, under the 1967 borders. Israel considers this to be a huge problem if the UN has already recognized a state which would be basically preempting the final status negotiations. So it's possible that with the the threat that the UN may act on this uh, out there, it's very possible that 
this could prompt new negotiations. It's also possible that the Israelis may conclude that the world has turned much more, or at least the neighborhood has turned much more hostile to them, that they can't predict whether Egypt will be uh, a reliable treaty partner anymore. They're worried about Jordan. They're worried about each of their borders, and that this would not be a good time to give in on Palestinian issues. I think we're paying the price for the fact that this process has ground uh, along so slowly with so few results for a decade. If I could ask a follow-up. Um, so this past month was a really um, bad month in Israel with bo the bombing of the bus and the family being attacked and the rockets being sent into the, uh, the south. Do you think that the increased tension, or at least it, like, I mean, it was the first terrorist attack with a bomb for a few years. So do you think that, that the increased tension was due to what was happening around surrounding the Palestinians with the other Arab countries? Or do you think it was a coincidence? Well, it certainly, you know, we don't know what the exact causes of this were, but there is significant evidence that Iran, through Hezbollah and Hamas, is seeking to exploit in various parts of the region much of what is going on. They're certainly beginning to operate in Bahrain, where there's a Shia majority. They certainly would have an interest, as would Hezbollah and Hamas, in creating some tensions here at this moment when they know that the Israelis are feeling particularly insecure uh, about this. And, you know, it's got to be a big concern for President Obama because a flare-up uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian front while he's trying to manage all the rest of this has the possibility of turning the nature of these crowds we've seen. And as we've said before, there were no anti-Israel or very few anti-Israel and anti-American signs in those crowds. If there was a resumption of hostilities, those crowds, I think, would change their nature very quickly. Thank you. Duncan? Hello, uh, my name is Duncan Gray. I'm a senior peace studies major from Bristol, Connecticut. Um, my question is, you said that the, the Arab revolts have not really been about us, which at its core is true, but the fact remains that we've been supporting oppressive dictatorial regimes in the Middle East and around the world for the better part of the last century um, in pursuit of our national interests and in a way that is directly contradictory to our purported national values. But what we're seeing, especially in, in places like Egypt, is that these values really do shine through regardless of our actions and whether they're codified into a governmental structure is a completely different question. Um, but so my question for you is, do you think that there will ever be a time that American foreign policy can recognize our national values as an intrinsic part of securing our national interests? You know, in very good question. And in um, 2006, um, Condoleezza Rice went to Egypt and gave a speech on this very subject in which she basically said what you said, which was that the U.S. had been supporting uh, authoritarian regimes for 50 years uh, in the hopes that we would get stability and ultimately reform, and that we had ended up getting neither. We had, didn't get stability out of it, and we didn't get reform out of it. And the reaction was so strong among the Egyptian leadership that President Mubarak never came to Washington again until President Obama came, came into power. And so what you saw the Obama administration do was sort of play down the democracy agenda during its first year or year and a half. 
and you've only seen them play, bring that back up since all of this began more recently. So now the question is, what role do you allow the democracy agenda or do you want to encourage the democracy agenda to play in American foreign policy? And what I observe about the Obama administration is that this is not a highly ideological group. This is probably the biggest collection of pragmatists I think I've ever covered. And so you have seen that in Afghanistan uh, and in Pakistan, President Obama has authorized more drone strikes than during the entire Bush presidency, by far, multiples. You have seen that he was willing to uh, pull support from Mubarak, as I suggested during my talk, only after he concluded that Egypt would be more unstable with Mubarak than without him. And I think one of the big questions that emerges from that, and it's a question you raise in, in your issue here, is are we going to have at some point a national debate about whether there needs to be a grand strategy here? And if you're going to have that grand strategy, are you willing to put American values first? And one way to put that is, are you willing to put American values first even if it means you pay six or seven or eight dollars a gallon at the pump? And that may be the real test for how committed Americans are to those values. Thank you. I, I think one of the points that Duncan, really one of the points that lurks underneath Duncan's question is whether American foreign policy, without any sort of partisan interpretation here, doesn't end up looking very cynical, just sort of based on the, the calculation of the moment in each place rather than enduring values. And, and I think that for better or worse, right or wrong, some people believed that Barack Obama was going to change that. I, I think that's right. And yet I think when you become an American president, for all that you want to talk about American values, the pressure on you to defend American interests are quite high, extraordinarily high. Uh, especially because you're dealing with a group of allies and adversaries who are certainly defending their interests out here. You know, you don't see the Chinese getting involved in a deep argument about values versus interests. It's all about interests. Even the French, as you suggested before, may have been all about interests and even their decision to go into Libya under a responsibility to protect mandate many of us suspect is really more about French interests than it is about French values. I guess the question is, can one imagine a time then when an American president would say, never mind the values, we're just going to act on the basis of our interests? It's a Can't really, do it. It's a really tough thing to do in the American polity. And Senator Sarbanes is here and he could probably give us a better sense than I can about what the pressures would be or how that would go over in um, in Congress, but I think to have an American president stand up and say, you know, I'd love to support democracy around the world, but in fact, I'm going for lower oil prices, I, I don't think that's, but that's really what we're. But that's what we're doing. So it's just that we can't say that's what we're doing. That's just what we, what we have to do. You just made the greatest argument for publishing WikiLeaks I've heard yet. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben. Uh, hello, my name is Ben Hollander. I'm a sophomore philosophy major from Silver Spring, Maryland. 
And I actually have two questions. Uh, the first question is, you briefly mentioned China. Um, you know, based on the increased censorship recently and increased imprisonment, such as the artist whose name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, do you think that there's any chance of some sort of, if not on the scale we've seen in the Middle East, some more sustained uprising in the face of this increased crackdown? And my second question is regarding the potential September UN resolution regarding the Palestinian state. In my mind, at least, a state spontaneously coming into existence on the 67 borders would not be a good thing, particularly due to heavy, heavily settled areas that would necessitate really a land swap in any sort of peace agreement. What do you think the outcome of that declared state would be if it came to that in September? Uh, two very good questions. Um, let me take China first. Um, one of the reasons that the Mideast was ripe for uprising was that the people who were out on the streets didn't see that there was much economic benefit to them in the authoritarian systems they were living under. They had been poor, they remained poor, they didn't see any great prospect or any great hope, and so it was not hard to get young people to take to the streets. In China, it's a very different calculation. What has kept the Communist Party in power since the invention of the internet? Since Tiananmen Square? It hasn't been their fidelity to communism. It's anybody here who's been to China recently knows that it's the most capitalist, unbridled capitalist place you've ever seen in, in recent times. It is the fact that there is the unspoken bargain with the Chinese, between the Chinese people and the leadership, that as long as the economy is growing at 8% a year, as long as new jobs are coming along, as long as people are feeling wealthier every year, as long as they're getting their cars, and if you've tried to drive in Beijing lately, it makes the beltway out here look like a party, um, that that has been the trade-off. And when I was doing research for uh, The Inheritance, um, uh, you'll see a chapter in the book, those of you who flip through it, called The Lenovo Generation. And I went and spent some time with the young people who are basically the children of Tiananmen Square protesters who work for Lenovo, which used to be the old IBM personal computer division that got bought out by a Chinese company. And they spend their days designing laptop computers and trying to beat Apple and trying to beat Dell and, and others. And I happened to be there during a period of a Chinese crackdown in Tibet. So I came in the morning, I had my coffee, I had my newspaper, I laid out the papers as we were sitting down. I said, so what do you think of this crackdown in Tibet? And they looked at it and they looked at each other and they said not a word about it. They said, we, under, we have passports, we can travel around. What the Chinese government decides to do with the people in Tibet is its problem. Now, at some point, something's going to give in China. The growth will slow down, the protests will pick up. But if you look at what protests have happened in China, they've almost all been about either corruption or environmental degradation people who are protesting because the river that's running right by where their kids are going to school has been you know, filled with industrial waste and people are getting sick. 
It has not been about political repression so far. Oh, and you asked on, on Israel uh, and the Palestinian case. Um, I think it would change things a lot uh, if, in fact, the General Assembly did recognize a Palestinian state. It ultimately would probably have to go in some form to the Security Council and President Obama would have to make a decision about whether or not to exercise a veto. I think it would be a very difficult thing for the President to exercise that veto because both President Bush and President Obama and really President Clinton before him, although he was less clear about this, had said there's got to be a two-state solution. So to veto a resolution for the creation of, a, of that Palestinian state I think would be a pretty tough move. But I think the President can use the doubt about whether he uses veto to try to move the Israelis and the Palestinians into a negotiation. Thank you very much. Billy. Yeah, hi. I'm uh, Billy Weiss. I'm a senior here, communications major and Spanish minor. Um, I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Quindecum student newspaper here. Great. And, um, I hope you're giving Sandy a really hard time. <laughs> well, not too hard. <laughs> um, I also have two questions. My, my first is, uh, you know, as a reporter, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about the journalism that's come from the Middle East over the past several months, particularly the fact that, um, you know, numerous journalists have come under attack, been assaulted, in some cases been captured for extended periods of time. Um, what do you think about the fact that, you know, journalists have become kind of part of, of, of the story? Um, my second question is, what's your advice for a young journalist? Um, we've seen more attacks in the Middle East uprisings than I can recall in almost any similar kind of situation. And I think it is a reflection of the sense that many of these uh, embattled leaders have that as soon as those cell phone pictures go out, as soon as the internet is filled with photos of what's happening, as soon as network TV or the New York Times or other newspapers are publishing about it, their support in Washington erodes right away. And this is where the values interest thing happens really fast. I mean, the US was watching these pictures from Tahir Square, and what really turned American officials against Mubarak's government was the day that those thugs rode in with the horses and they were whipping people and shooting people. And it was just one day of activity and you know, relatively mild compared to things we saw happen later on in Libya and so forth, and yet it was enough to really turn the tide. And so I think that all of these leaders have come to recognize the power of this medium and they have been acting in the crudest ways, pulling the plug on the internet and locking up their own journalists or beating American or other foreign journalists. Um, the only thing you can do with that is write about it and expose it as much as you can. Um, for advice to young journalists, I mean, you know, it's easy to tell all the jokes about, you know, the difficulty of uh, going into journalism today and uh, likening it to getting a job, um, you know, uh, making wagon wheels or something like that. <laughs> but the reality is that for all the reasons you just asked about in your first question, we are read by more people now than we have ever been read by, and I'm just here talking about the New York Times, in our history. And think about this, that you get about 
a million people reading the New York Times during the week, a million and a half for the Sunday paper. But on the website, you could have eight, nine, on a big news day, 20 million people coming in. Some may only stay briefly. Some may only read one story. But they're coming there, and they're beginning to get hooked on it, and they're from all around the world. It's an incredibly powerful uh, medium, and the fact that we are being read by more people around the world tells you that there's more demand for what all of you are doing at the student newspaper than there has ever been before. It's just you can't count on there being print newspapers throughout your career. I thought I could throughout my career, and you know, I'm sure there will be print newspapers left, and I think the New York Times will continue printing in a, its old traditional form for a long time. But the fact of the matter is the primary newspaper to the New York Times is not really the print edition anymore. It has long been all of the different things you can do with the web edition and the version that you can get on your iPhone and what you get on your iPad. So if you go into the industry with an understanding that you are not there as a newspaper reporter, but as a processor, an interpreter of data, writing about it, explaining it in front of a camera, doing it on audio, doing it on television, since all of these technologies are merging. If you go into it with that, then, you know, it's incredibly satisfying. And what's the most satisfying part? That you get up every morning, and A, you don't know what's going to happen. That's a pretty good thing. And the second thing is you get up every morning and you're still excited about the work. And I know more journalists who get up in the morning excited and thrilled to go to work than I do in almost any other profession. Thanks I will say that, David, the uh, notion of being an intrepid processor of data mm -hmm. is not the same as being an intrepid correspondent once was. I mean, it, I, I, I take your point, but somehow it seems uh, less inspiring. Um, by processor of data, Sandy, I didn't mean that you're sitting in front of a tube all day right. just you know, doing that merging. It's all in the reporting. Sure. Okay. But then when you're turning out your final result, you have to be willing to do it on every conceivable different platform. Right. And you, and, and you still have to be able to look someone in the eye and judge whether that person's lying or not, make, make a lot of judgments on the fly that, that make you feel over time as if you're adding something to the well-being of the planet. That's right. And you also, you know, it is in the interpretation. I mean, let's face it, the web will give us the headlines now. You know, you don't need, you don't need what New York Times journalists do each and every day to get the basic headline. And sadly, too many Americans think that if they've listened to the local news or even the national news on TV, they understand what's happening because they're getting essentially a series of headlines. But the exciting part about journalism is doing the reporting, being out there, making those judgments, and then trying to weave it into a bigger, uh, a bigger story, a narrative story uh, that really improves understanding. And that can only be done the old shoe leather way. But you have many more ways to tell the story right. now. Fair enough. All right. Hi. Um, I'm Ari Bornstein. Um, I'm a history and computer science student from uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and I wanted to know that with the well-known notorious corruption of the PLO and Hamas, would a imposed UN Palestinian state um, be 
valuable to the Palestinian people, or would it be the West just propping up another, uh, another uh, dictatorship or regime in the uh, Middle East? You know, it depends entirely on what the Palestinian state looked like. And, you know, part of the difficulty the Palestinians have run into is they are incredibly divided, you know, on this issue. But you have seen the beginnings of a real Palestinian government begin to form, or at least you have seen the beginnings of some functioning governance in some places. Um, and the United States is already on record as saying that it believes in a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the world is gonna have to go help the Palestinians build whatever that state's gonna be. Um, as we've learned around the world, state building is still a pretty ugly thing. You know, it's, it's a difficult process. We thought as a country that it would come together in Iraq very quickly. The people who were sent to Iraq after the fall of Baghdad, which was, what, only eight years ago, were told to that they were only gonna be needed to stay around for about six months, at which point the whole thing would be turned over to the Iraqis and they'd have a full-functioning democracy. Well, we're still there. Afghanistan, I suspect we will be there for years and years and years. So building a Palestinian state's not gonna be easy but it's not necessarily gonna be any harder than it is in many other places around the world. Uh, and uh, so, you know, at some point, at some point the world's gonna have to start. I don't know if that moment is this year or next year or five or 10 years from now. Thank you. Thank you. Elaine. Hi, I'm We're Elaine. just gonna take a few more questions and then. Elaine Freeman, an alum from 58, but, um, do you think that the current detention of Mubarak is gonna make it more difficult to get other dictators whom we would like to exit their countries to leave? Um, uh, the question for those of you who didn't hear it is, is the detention of, of uh, Mubarak who is now um, uh, being interrogated by the state that a few months ago he was running uh, and actually by a prosecutor he appointed. How's that for adding insult to injury? Um, uh, will that make it more difficult to get other leaders, uh, other dictators to leave their countries? Well, maybe, but maybe not. I mean, for Gaddafi, you've got to think, what are the incentives for Gaddafi not to fight it out to the very end? If he left Libya, he's probably going to get indicted by some form of the international court, either on the Lockerbie charges or something else. His money's been cut off. Um, any country that took him would be seen to be harboring a criminal. So there are very few incentives for Gaddafi to do anything but hang on and hope for the best at this moment. Um, for President Saleh, you know, there are periodic That's discussions. That's in Yemen. Uh, in Yemen. Uh, there are periodic discussions of deals that may be struck to get him out of the country, and that might be a little bit easier. I think it's gonna be different in every country. David, thank you very much. I, can I ask you to pass me those two bags over there? Sure. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to know which is which, but one of these is for you, and one is for your mom. Oh, wow. And I wonder if she'd come up. Great. Joan, will you? 
Thank you very much. I've, I've got to see while we're out here on the stage, right. just, it, you know, whether you're going to make a, make a Red Sox fan wear Oriole paraphernalia oh, no, or what's going to happen here. Oh, even better, even better than Oriole paraphernalia, it's actually a Goucher cap, which I now have to put on. Right. Here we go. Thank Excellent. you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for coming, David.